good to be together today. A couple of announcements. You all may be seated now. Now, now is the time you can sit down. First of all, tonight, we're at this lake we're going to. I've been there. Uh, I do want to invite you. We have a map of where to park because uh, it's, it's a nice little lake. It's just literally down, is it 99? It's like a mile outside of town. It's just uh, south of town. And uh, we're going to get together this, tonight at 7. Ice cream is after. Thank you, Jordan. We're going to have the Holy Spirit first. And then ice cream, I think, I, you know, the Holy Spirit's definitely aware of ice cream. We love the fact that he gave us that, those cows that give us that ice cream that we get to enjoy. So just tonight, let me tell you what we're going to do. We're going to spend some time in worship. But then, church, this is one of the things that we do together as a community of faith to celebrate new life, to celebrate people that have discovered the Lord Jesus, are beginning their walk with him, and what we're going to do is we're going to see people proclaiming that they were dead in Christ, and now because of receiving him and starting that relationship, they're now raised up to a new life. And I want you to know we're going to have special guests with us tonight, family are coming to be with us, and so I think it's going to be a good evening. And by the way, I'm praying for weather, uh, that it's going to be a cool afternoon of 75 to 80 uh, maybe cloudy and no rain. So, yeah, I know. Hey, you guys got an inch last night. Topeka only got ten hundreds, but some around here got an inch or maybe a little more. It's the biggest rain I hear you've had all summer. So we thank the Lord for that. And uh, if you know if it rains, it rains. You all come. We'll eat ice cream underneath our umbrellas and getting baptized. You know, there's water out there. We'll just do it in the rain. But you all come and be a part. The second thing in your bulletins. Now, I did not tell Priscilla I was going to do this. So, y'all, I'm going to, I'm going to, yeah. In your bulletins, it talks about Tuesday night. It's the kickoff for the women's ministry. And Priscilla's coming down to be with all of you. You get your fall uh, women's ministry set up. It's 6 o'clock is a salad buffet, I think. But Priscilla's going to be speaking on, if I got this, getting real about blessings. And, you know, I am up here every week or the weeks that I come and talk to all of you. And I've been talking about the blessings that we have. We see that God has said in Ephesians. But uh, you're going to hear some other parts of how that is lived out and what we've done together and what she's done of experiencing God's blessings. So I just want to invite you at 6 o'clock here at the building. Lori was right here. 6 o'clock here at the building. Come, you all women. All right, one service today. I only get to say it one time, not two like normal. But today we're going to dive back into Ephesians chapter 1. And so I want to ask all of us to stand together as one church under the authority of God's word as I read this longest sentence in the New Testament where Paul pours his heart out. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3 through 14. And we stand together telling the Lord that we want His Word to go over us and to rule our lives. And so here's God's Word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us 
in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you want us to understand what a good God you are. And I pray this morning, Father, as we are just together in this place, that your spirit would have unusual freedom to speak to us. We want to hear from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all may be seated. We're working our way through seven rocket verbs. These verbs, as Paul was in prison and just thinking about his life, he wants to start this letter to the church of Ephesus, which is the only letter without a problem. He's just trying to help the church in Ephesus and into all the other churches understand what it is to be what we are today, a community of people who believe. And how do we live together? And so as a community of people who are looking to God for guidance, for our salvation, for a relationship with Him, for helping us define our relationship with other people, Paul starts with prayer. And this long sentence, for, you know, all those words, long sentence in the New Testament, he pours out what God has done for us. First of all, he's a blesser. He's the one who blesses. We start with that. Paul starts with that word. He's a blesser. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Even as he chose, he's a chooser. He chooses us to be in a relationship with him so that we can be holy and blameless before him. And he predestined us for adoption. He didn't predestine us for enrollment. He didn't predestine us for enlistment. He didn't predestine us for a contract work. He predestined us for a family relationship to be adopted as children. And then last week, we took that word that in English is so common that he blessed us again, but we 
I tried to help you see that that word's only used twice in the New Testament, once when Gabriel speaks, and then once when Paul reminds us that he drenches us, he overpowers us with his grace that is glory-filled, that we can get to know who God is because of what he's done for us and his grace, and that is what he drenched us with because of his purposed will. And that gets us to today's new verb, lavished. Now, here's what I love about the way Paul, I mean, the dude's got time to think, okay? Just a minute, you're in a, in a cell context, you've got plenty of time to process. And so when he took the word, drenched, as I'm doing it in English, he took that word, it's only used twice, it's nowhere else in, in that ancient Greek writing, it's just from Luke, who, who said Mary must, you know, he didn't say this, but he told what Mary said, he wrote it down, and it's Gabriel who used the word, and then I think Paul thinking about how can I explain how much and how good it is to have a purpose God love us, he drenches us, it's only used two times, the very next word, 40, let me, it's 78 times in the New Testament, it's everywhere. And Paul himself uses it 45 times. So this is a word, he just is wearing this word out. It's the word lavished. Now isn't it interesting that drenched, that God blesses us with that much a blessing according to the purpose of his will, that he's drenched us. Then Paul just goes on and says, oh and by the way, I couldn't explain it enough. I got to tell you, he lavishes us with his grace. And so let's take this, these verses apart, just seeing how Paul builds us, takes us to understand the next thing that God does for us, and that is he lavishes on us the riches of his grace. So back in verse 6, he drenched us, and I didn't go here last week, he drenched us in the beloved. Now, church family, I don't know about you, but around our house, we have nicknames. Uh, if we started, Jennifer's first name was Muffin. Now, I don't know how we got to Muffin, but that's who our daughter is. We called her Muffin, and then it went to Muffy. And so, you know, just little Jennifer, she's a little girl running around our house. We just would love on her with that name. And there's... And by the way, I've got some nicknames that are not good. I had a very good friend of mine, Bill Phillips. We served in Africa together. And I had a nickname for him, and he said, John, don't ever call me that name. Because what you think that name is is not what I think that name is. And so being careful with names. But look how Paul locked up. He could have said, we've been drenched in Jesus. We've been drenched in the Christ. We've been drenched in the Holy One. But Paul has named him the Beloved. Now, husbands, I hope you've been married long enough that you've got some very special names, some thoughts of your wife. If we're supposed to love our wives like Christ loved the church, there ought to be some ways that we think 
and we identify our wife as a special person. But we get to see it right here with Paul thinking about the Lord. That he is the one I love. The beloved, the, the one that means everything to me. Now, I believe this letter of Ephesians, Paul's trying to help a church capture what he's discovered. Remember, he's a Pharisee of the Pharisees. This guy is, he's the rock star. He's the number one over there in the Jewish group. And yet, after that experience of meeting Christ on the road to Damascus, his life was changed. And now he now talks about a relationship with God totally different than what he taught before. And so after the years of growing in Christ, he's now to a place where when he thinks of who Jesus is, it's not a theological outline. He doesn't pull out the Baptist faith message and read through who is Jesus. He's got one name. And he says, it's in the beloved one. In that beloved one, in him, in that one, we have. And I like he's not singular. He didn't say I have. Church family, he said we. We have redemption. Now, I so appreciate the worship team. We just sang a song about being redeemed. But that word is a very special word because today there's nobody in this, no, nobody in this room has experienced, other than your relationship with God, which is a spiritual aspect of it, but you've not experienced the face-to-face -face experience of being redeemed. Because redemption means you are bought out of slavery. And there's nobody in this room that has been a slave. You've not been held against your will. You've not been made to do things that slaves are made to do. But in Paul's world, slavery was a real. It was a reality. And you could redeem a slave by going to the slave owner, the one that had control over that person's life, and you could redeem him or her by paying a price. And there, I don't know if it was agreement, but there was an amount that, was, that that person is worth, and you can redeem that person by paying that amount. And so Paul says, in that beloved, in him, we have the act of being redeemed. We were slaves to something. Now, in the book of Romans, Paul's going to explain that we are slaves to sin. Today in baptism, we're going to talk about as we prepare those that are going to be baptized, that they were dead in sin. Not only were slaves to sin, we're dead in sin. We can't respond. Dead people don't respond to the other, to the other call of life. One of the great examples that uh, when I heard Max Monet one time trying to teach about what it is to be dead in sin, he said, let's just go to a funeral. And there's the casket, there's the corpse, Let's go up there and try to tempt that corpse with anything. You can bring money. You can bring anything you want to that corpse, and nothing's going to happen. That was our relationship to God the Father. We were dead because of what sin had done on us, and so being forgiven, that's the negative. He says we were redeemed through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, and so that forgiveness 
and new life we have in Christ begins to give us the opportunity to open our eyes right there. I mean, that's the picture we're going to have today of baptism. They're going to be buried, and then all of a sudden they're going to come out of that water. And as they come out of that water, their eyes are going to be opened. And what we're doing is just giving an example of the reality that I trust is every one of us in this room's experience that you can see him spiritually, you can hear him speak to your heart, you can now respond to him because you have been bought. He has paid the price of the blood of his son on that cross where he shed his blood for us to buy us out of slavery. Now, one of the things, every week I almost, I touch the same topic because I, it's meaningful for me, and that is I'm looking forward to heaven. And I say, oh, I can't wait. I've said I can't wait to get there and ask a question about, tell me about what happened. You know, I want to know Mary, when she talked to Gabriel about that, Luke, when he interviewed Mary. Those are things that I'm kind of looking forward to. But today I want to emphasize the fact that the Christian life is not about the sweet by and by. It is about today. It is about the fact that we have been slaves to sin. We have been captive to what Satan, what the world, and even ourself, our sinful self, the part that is against God, that sinful part of us, the carnal part of us, that's a word that Paul uses, that those three want to keep us away from a relationship with him. But today, this morning, maybe even right now, while you're sitting here with this body of Christ, maybe there's something going on in your mind where you're feeling pulled away, kind of an attachment to, where you're, in a sense, treated as a slave. I own you on this subject. This subject's my subject with you. And we're held captive to that. And Paul wants us to know that in the beloved, we have been redeemed today. And so those patterns of slavery, those patterns of being captured, those patterns of being held by evil, by what's separating us from God, that that has been broken. You only redeem a slave once. You pay the price once, and the slave is a free slave. And so I want to ask you today, are you living that way? And if you're not, what does that say about your value, how you value the gift of what he did for us to set us free from slavery? I'll guarantee you, the evil one, he's good. Jesus came and told us, he said, I want you to know, Satan has come to steal, to kill, and destroy. Now, that's his strategy. When they huddle up and they name your name or they are around you and they say, oh, Here's our, our intention is to steal life away from you, to kill, to stop, or to destroy all that God wants you to have. And so what Paul's wanting us to understand that in the beloved, we have the gift of being bought out of slavery, and we have the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now, you know, God is above time. 
we've, Paul himself begins by saying, before the foundations of the world were laid, he predestined that our relationship would be an adoption relationship. So he's talking about before time started. And so now you and I are living in the process of time, and I just want to let you know, you don't know what your trespass is going to be tomorrow. You don't know what that's going to be. But I'll guarantee you that what Paul says happened on that cross is bigger than time. And so you have the forgiveness of your trespass is already available to us if we confess, if we turn back to him and say, God, what I've done is wrong. And allow the Holy Spirit to build in us a pattern of leaving what was behind. It's forgiven, but now living in the righteousness that Paul said. He, in him, he chose us to be in him so that we can be holy and blameless before him. And that's that building of that pattern of our responses to life today that's in a right relationship demonstrates a reality of how he wants us to live, him in us. And so that drenching of God's grace, that glorious, that grace that pulls back the curtain on who God is, that he wants everybody in your family, everybody in Emporia, everyone around your life to see the evidence of him in you, changing the way you act, changing the way you think, being a, an example of the power of his grace because we've been set free from the slavery of sin. And so getting us to that place of being holy and blameless, to be in that re growing relationship of a father who's adopted us as a child. He chose us. He's adopted us. He drenched us in his grace. And now he's going to lavish on us and Here's that word again, according to, according to the riches of his grace. Now, last week we talked about according to. According to means it's determined by or it's in proportion to. And so I love this one this week for lavish, in proportion to the riches of his grace. You remember last week I talked about the glory of his grace. I mean, can you imagine Paul has sat and thought long and hard how to help all of us discover how big our relationship with God is. And so last week, he, as Paul wrote down, he said, I want him to understand the glory, how big. And I talked about those four creatures that just can't stop looking at God's glory and they just keep saying, holy, oh my, holy. Holy is he. That glory that they're seeing, that's that glorious grace. He wants it on us according to or in relationship with that glorious grace. And now he comes to say, determined by the riches of his grace. Now, one of the things I've really enjoyed about being here with you, you folks is you're a diverse bunch. I mean, there's ranchers. There's construction people, there's business owners, there's professors at the university, there's school teachers. You're just a great church. You're very diverse. But there's some of you in this room that are doing pretty well. You've got business or you've got, you've got things that are going very well for you right now. And when it talks about lavish, 
Some of you that have got a, a checkbook that's big enough, you know how to be lavish. You know, one of the things that um, was a gift that I got to do with the International Mission Board was we, at the time I was working for them, right now today, was there about 3,800, 3,800 missionaries that we're sending around the world. Well, when I was there, there was about 5,500. And to keep 5,500 missionaries out doing their work, I'm telling you, it takes, it takes a lavish bank account to take care of them, take care of their health care, take care of the education of their kids, to keep them in transportation, to bring them back and forth in the United States, to get them out there and keep them in their work. That's no small amount. And to get the amount of money we needed, we had a foundation group. And uh, every now and then, the job that I did, I was responsible for what was going on in southern and central and eastern Africa. I'd meet with those donors. Now, those are the donors. I'll, I'll name one of them, John Grisham, the author. Uh, John Grisham is one of the donors to the International Mission Board. Uh, he lives in Virginia. And I was in a meeting not much bigger than this room, and old John Grisham snuck in the back door. And he wanted to hear the report. And he just wanted to hear what God's doing. And by the end of the service, he wrote out a check, $1 million. He gave it to Jerry Rankin. Now, folks, I'm not writing million-dollar checks. Wish could. But I don't have the capacity to be that lavish. And yet, as Paul thinks about the riches the riches of God's grace. Some of us have been caught in a lie. And that lie is that God's a cheapskate. And I want to take you to a story that proves he's not. If you've got your Bible, flip over from Ephesians chapter 1 to John chapter 2. Last week we're in the book of Luke. This week we're in the book of John. And in John chapter 2, here's what it says. I'm going to try to tell it to you in John chapter 2. It's a few days, three days after, there was a wedding in Cana. And Mary was at that wedding, and Jesus and the disciples were invited to come and be there. But when the wine ran out, Mary came to her son and said, they're out of wine. And Jesus said to her, ma'am, I'll come back to that if you're reading your Bibles, woman, ma'am, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. And Mary says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. <laughs> now, there were six purification jugs, stone jugs. Those six jugs hold between 20 and 30 gallons apiece. And Jesus said to the servants, fill them up. And they did. They filled them to the brim. And then Jesus said, take some of that to the master of ceremonies. And as they, were, they took it, they, did, they knew where they'd gotten the water. But they gave it to the master of ceremonies. And he called the bridegroom over. And he said, what is it? At a wedding, you start, you begin with the best wine. Everyone serves that wine first. And when people have drunk freely, 
Then they serve the poor wine. But you have kept the best until last. This is the first miracle that Jesus did. And his disciples believed. And that's the end of the story. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, down through verse 11. Let's talk about that story a little bit. Jesus doesn't have all the disciples. We know at least there's John and James, the two brothers of Zebedee, and there's Peter and Andrew, Philip, maybe Nathaniel, the guys up there in the north in Cana. And there's a wedding, and I love the way it says, and Mary was at the wedding. Now, y'all do not think this room, okay? We're talking a wedding which probably is this many people or less. These are little houses. And a wedding in the Jewish world at this time is a week long. So they're together, they're celebrating the husband and the wife, they've been engaged, and now we're celebrating them getting married. And you've thought, how are you going to take care of about this many people? And Mary, because of the relationships she has with the family, with the bridegroom, with his parents, whoever's there at that house in Cana, and she comes to Jesus and she says, Jesus, they're out of wine. Now, y'all, that's not good. Because somebody didn't plan ahead, or they, when they invited Mary and they said, well, you bring your son Jesus along, they didn't think that Jesus was going to bring a bunch of disciples, six or seven more guys, they're going to come in and get in on the wedding. And we don't know why they're out of wine, but they're out of wine. And I love the fact that where does Mary go? She goes to Jesus. Now, let's get honest here. Do you think Jesus has made breakfast? You know, said breakfast. Breakfast shows up for Mary. I don't think so. I don't think Jesus has ever done anything like this. But I do think that Jesus can solve problems. And I do think that Mary believes in him. And remember last week where we said she's pondering in her heart? She doesn't know what this guy, everything that he can do, but she definitely knows he's very unusual. And he's got some buddies with him, and maybe they're going to solve the problem. And so she comes and says they're out of wine. She doesn't tell him what to do. She just says, here's the issue. No wine for a friend. Now, if you've got your Bibles, look and see verse 4. Because in English, we miss it. It says, and he says to her, woman. All right, you can take that. Remember I started talking about names a few minutes ago? This is one today I never call my wife, ever. Guys, don't do this, okay? I'm just going to give you a hint. Never call your wife, woman. <laughs> Only gets you in trouble. Translate that word today, it would be like more ma'am. It's a polite word. It just means a woman with, with some respect. Ma'am, what does this have to do with me? Now, here's what's the kicker of this miracle. We're tempted. I was tempted to think, well, Jesus trying to love on his mama. He says, fill up the jugs. But in John chapter 5, Jesus says, it's not my mama. It's not my mama that I'm watching. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, everything I do, I do because I see the Father doing it. And so we, we don't get to watch how he does it. But on that day, after he knew the problem, he looked to his Father in prayer. However, that relationship of Jesus here on earth with that kind of a relationship with the Heavenly Father. He knew. 
that it's time we're going to do something different at this, at this wedding. And so he told the guys to go, six jugs. Okay, now math here. I've asked in here for English teachers. I know there's math teachers in this room. What is six jugs times 20? How many gallons? Six times 20. Did I hear 120? How about six times 30? 180. Okay, I've got an assignment. I, and you parents, I want you to do this with your kids. When you go to Dillon's or you go to Hy-Vee, I don't know what stores you got here in town. You do have a Dillon's, right? You got a Dillon's. I want you to go to the milk department. I want you to go over there in that big place where all those glasses and you got gallon jugs of milk. I want you to count how many is 120. How many, how many sit there we can look at? How deep is 120 or 180 gallons? That's lavish. And so as Jesus looks out on just this little, this little tiny group of people, and he is creating a miracle, when God does things, he is lavish. 120 gallons of the finest wine that the bride, the master of ceremonies says, what in the world are you doing? Everybody around here who knows how to do a wedding, you don't start with the good stuff. I mean, you start with the good stuff, and then you finish it off with the leftovers. But what have you done? Everybody around here has had enough to drink, and then you bring out this. It is so good. Now, what I love about this story, this is the first miracle. John captures miracles. This miracle, who knows? Does Jesus call the crowd? Hey, folks, come here. Guess what? You guys are out of wine. Six of them right there, just for you. Does he do that? No. Jesus calls servants. He said, fill them up. The only people that know what's going on are the servants because they know where they got the water. Jesus and the disciples. The bridegroom doesn't know anything. Mama doesn't know anything. And the master of ceremonies doesn't know anything. Now, that's the way he starts. Now, let's compare this miracle, which was almost instantaneous, with the last miracle in the book of John, which is in John 11. The last miracle is the raising of Lazarus. The last miracle, he wants as many people as he can get. He calls them down, let's go down there, and they're all saying, what are you talking about? You can't roll that stone away. Behold, he stinketh. He's been in that tomb for four days. Don't roll the stone away. And Jesus says, roll that stone away. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And he does it in front of everybody. Both of those miracles are lavish. But you know what? God in his wisdom knows where we're at and what we can take. And I just love the way that Jesus was training disciples to get ready to walk with him for the rest of their lives. The second thing about this lavish miracle, I said it when I was doing the story, these jugs are for what? They're purification jugs. They hold purification water. And that means that when you come into a house to be clean, to be purified symbolically, then you take water out of those jugs 
and you wash your feet, you wash your hands, probably wash your face, and you're purified. You're ready to be together in a purified way. That's external purification. What's Jesus here to do? He is here to provide for us internal purification. And that's by his blood. And what are we going to do the next time we celebrate the Lord's Supper? We're going to have cups up here and we're going to say that this cup, and we're Baptists and we don't drink wine, this cup represents his blood that was shed for us on the cross. The very first miracle starts with him showing he is an intentional Savior who's come to lavishly pour out internal purification. Now, did he, did he sit down and tell the disciples that? He didn't. He just did what he did. And I believe he did what he did because the Father told him, now's the time to start. And so, church family, we have Paul sitting in a prison thinking about what can I do to help a church capture who this loving, giving, blessing, choosing, predestining, drenching, lavishing Father for all of us, who this is and how we relate to him. And I want to, I gave you one assignment, go to Dylan's and count the milk jugs. Here's the second assignment. As we're growing in our relationship with God, the, you know, it's easy to have these words on Sunday morning. But it's a whole nother thing during the week to begin to say, God, would you show me? Would you show me your grace? Can you, can you show me how what you do for me, what you've done for those in my family, what you've done around me? Will you open my eyes? You know, we sang that today. You know, here's our life. Lord, show me what is true. And let's live this week being aware of what God has done First of all, with the glorious grace that he's given us. Secondly, with the riches of that grace, according to, or in proportion, that grace is so rich that he lavishes it on us. And as we do that, with all humility, being realizing one more time we had nothing to do with this. That lavish gift of us, we don't deserve it. You didn't earn it. He gave it as a lavish gift, humility, gentleness as we treat other people around us with that gentle spirit because that's just who he is. He treats us that way. And with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit that God wants in this church. With all the diversity, as he unifies us, not under 12th Avenue, not under some other banner, only under him. Under him, that unity that he wants with all the diversity of who we are, living as he is our Lord. He's the blesser, he's the chooser, he's the destiner, he's the drencher, and he's the lavish one. I want to ask you to stand. going to pray for us and then close us with a benediction out of Ephesians chapter 3. So let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you. Father, that you've chosen at just the right time.
to send your son to a world that was desperately looking for a savior. And yet you broke all the, the systems that they thought they had in place so that you could bring a message that would be for every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation on earth. You are a lavish grace giver. And Father, today as we, your family here in Emporia, we thank you that you are a God who knows us. But Father, I pray that in this, just this family of your people, that you'd continue to help us see you at work around us. That because of the riches of your grace and the glory of your grace, that we would be transformed because of your spirits speaking to our hearts. We want to walk with you today. First in your son's name we pray. Amen. So church, it's 1118. Some of you are going to get to the restaurant earlier than you thought. But I got a verse to end this. So here's the benediction for today. May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the goodness of God. Go and be the church.